0: You're
1: listening to The Other Connor Podcast, a part of the Hockey Podcast Network. Here's your host, Connor Halley. Hello, Oilers fans, and thank you once again for tuning in to The Other Connor Podcast, Episode 8, a part of the Hockey Podcast Network, brought to you by DraftKings. And good news, football fans, the moment you've been waiting for all season is right around the corner, and DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of Super Bowl Fifty Five is bringing back their golden ticket giveaway with up to $55 million in prizes. Up for grabs, it's simple. All you've got to do to get your share of these huge prizes is enter the DraftKings free Super Bowl prediction challenge. Once you submit your picks, you'll get a free instant prize up to $25,000. And if you have the most predictions correct, you could win the top prize of $1 million. It's simple. All you got to do is download the app. Enter the free prediction challenge and answer questions like who will score last, and that's it. Then you can get a chance to make it rain. DraftKings has paid out over $7 billion to its players since 2012, so they know a thing or two about big paydays. Download the DraftKings app now and use the promo code THPN to enter the free $55 million Super Bowl prediction challenge. Everyone gets an instant prize up to $25,000 just for playing. So use promo code THPN now and enter the free $55 million Super Bowl challenge only at DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of Super Bowl 55. Let's get right into the Edmonton Oilers talk as they fall on Thursday night to the Toronto Maple Leafs 4-3. And overall, just not the most inspiring performance. They fall down 2-0 after 20 minutes. They would battle back to tie things up. Leon Draisaitl scoring two goals for the Oilers. Both goals on the power play to make it 2-2. But the Toronto Maple Leafs would take the lead back. Wayne Simmons with his third goal of the season. Zach Cassie would get on the board for the Oilers to tie it up at three apiece. Good for him. Inside the blue paint, banging in a rebound. Kyle Turris, Adam Larson pick up the helpers there. But at the end of the day, it was Austin Matthews scoring on the power play, his fifth goal of the season. To give the Maple Leafs the 4-3 lead, that is how it would end. And that was a tough play on that goal for Kyler Yamamoto on the PK. Just couldn't clear it out. The Toronto Maple Leafs make them pay, and not the most inspiring effort, as I said, just for the Edmonton Oilers. seemed like they were never really in that game. They found ways to keep it close, but the Toronto Maple Leafs always seemed to have an answer and would bounce back. So the Edmonton Oilers now falling to 3-6 and on the season. They're now eight points back of the Toronto Maple Leafs as of Thursday evening. The two teams meeting once again on Saturday, puck drop 5 o'clock as the Oilers look to try to get the split in this series. Then they'll have two more games against the Ottawa Senators, but uh just not the performance you wanted to see from the Edmonton Oilers on a Thursday evening. On the show tonight, we will break down that game with Corey Graham of TSN 1260. You can hear him every Monday through Friday from 6 to 9. He and Hernan Salas also on during Oilers' intermissions on TSN 1260. So if you want to vent, you want to get pissed off, you can always text into 101260, share your thoughts with those two. But on this episode of the Other Connor Podcast, we're going to move on to other things, because we will, of course, talk about this edition of the Edmonton Oilers, but we want to do more, and we will. We're going to be joined by former Edmonton Oilers, one of the most intimidating figures to think that I've ever seen, Andy Sutton. And you remember him? Big guy, six foot six, two 245 pounds, patrolled the Oilers' blue line for 52 games back in 2011-2012. He actually planned to stay longer before injuries ended his career. But we're going to have Andy on the show to talk about some of his time with the Oilers, the trade that brought him here, the unfortunate injuries that ended his career, and what he's up to now. We're also going to talk to Sliver Delory. Long-time Oilers equipment staff member, and uh this was a really fun conversation. I taped it earlier on today, and this guy's got some stories. And unfortunately, there's some stories he couldn't even tell us, because it might get some people in trouble. But it's an interview you do not want to miss. That's coming up later on in the podcast, but... We do have to talk a little bit about this edition of the Edmonton Oilers. And, of course, they fall to the Toronto Maple Leafs on Thursday night. We're going to bring in Corey Graham, who, of course, is on TSN 1260 Monday through Friday from 6 till 9. Also, as I mentioned, he and Hernan Salas are on live throughout the entirety of the intermission. So if you ever want to vent, you want to call in and just... Let them know how you really feel. You can always do that on TSN 1260. Also, Corey is on Twitter. Give him a follow, at Corey Graham. Corey, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing good, Connor. How are you? Oh, well, uh, we're recording this interview Thursday night, immediately following the Oilers game. It is 10.34. I've been at the building since noon, but I think I still have more energy than the Oilers had coming out to start that game tonight, like... I don't know what it was Uh, I know you and Hernan talked about it when Leon Dreiselt scored the first goal of the game you're thinking that's a chance to build some momentum but I mean there was no celebration like this team just doesn't seem to have any energy out there
2: yeah, and it's been a constant thing we've talked about it a lot on my show, and I know you guys have on the Gregor show too, like it's just, the, the lack of emotion, the lack of will, like the lack of want, the lack of giving, you know what, like it just, this team doesn't seem to care. And, uh, you know, I, I know they do, but it just doesn't come across, you know, you watch other teams play, you watch other games, and um they have, like, they're fast, they're competitive, there's scrums, there's, you know, with the Oilers, like, Connor, I think, you know, you could stand in front of the net and nobody would touch you. Like, nobody, like, a couple times in this game tonight where the Leafs, I mean, granted, they're on the power play and they're swarming Koskinen. You know, everybody's digging for a loose puck, but there's not one single guy getting knocked on his ass in front of the net. Like, there's just none of it. It just, it just boggles my mind at times how little things that, um, seemingly are, are easy to figure out. You know, you can't teach skill, but, you know, will is something that you just need to have. And the always just don't seem to have that will or that want to compete.
1: Corey, you obviously, you've watched a lot of hockey in your time. I mean, how does the message get conveyed to the players? to do that like I I just don't know what Dave (laughs) Tibbet can do these are grown ass men that go out there and perform the way they do like is he supposed to get out there and just you know give him the big speech before the game like I, I just don't know why this continually happens well it comes from inside right it comes from the leadership core of the team
2: um and that's, you know, listen, they have the two best players in the world, so it's hard to criticize them, but something is, is feels rotten on the inside of this team. It's almost like, you know, the decade of darkness and all that stuff, losing became okay. Um And I know they've changed the coach, they've changed the general manager, they've changed a ton of the players, but it still feels like losing's okay. You listen to the quotes after the game, you listen to, oh, we're on the right path, and, oh, you know, we just got to get a few bounces. Like tonight, Connor, they got, I mean, they got every call seeming to go their way, and that, you know, you get those games, right? Um um, where, where the referees seem to, to give you a couple bonus calls that maybe you didn't deserve. And, and there's other games, of course, it all evens out where you're upset because you think they, the league's against you. But tonight, that, that wasn't the case, and they capitalized on the power play. But... You know they had to wait till a five-on-three to get things going. Like it just, it just boggles my mind. You know, you look at the first goal for Toronto. It's a it's a gimme from Koskinen, but nobody takes Jason Spezza. He's allowed to stand in front of the net with four dark jerseys around him and just, you know, kind of like one hand a backhander into the net. It was it was gross. And uh yeah, I don't know. I mean, we we heard at the end of the season after they got knocked out the commitment to team defense was going to be the big thing. And have have you seen a difference in this team? I, I sure haven't.
1: No, I mean, you know. I I can't. I can't say I've seen a difference, and uh, it it was a lot of good talk. They talked the talk in their ten-day camp, and uh, we thought that maybe, maybe things would change, but it hasn't. And uh, just a a real tough performance for the Edmonton Oilers as they lose four-three to the Toronto Maple Leafs Thursday evening. Um, Any positives for you? Like for me, I say, okay, well, the third line scored a Mm five-on-five goal. Zach Cassian good for him good for him for going to the blue paint and scoring a rebound goal but for you anything positive stick out I mean that was a good one obviously you see some they score five on five with their bottom six and you know
2: Actually going to the front of the net, so I agree with you there. Their power play looked better at times. I mean, they got a lot of opportunities, but they did—they were able to cash in a few times. And like, I, if I'm Leon Drysudle, like I'm taking a page out of Alexander Ovechkin's book and just getting ready for that one timer. You know, just why not shoot the puck more from from that situation? Um You know, they moved around with Nurse and Barry and on the power play a little bit tonight, and they had uh, Pulley Arvey on the top unit at times. It, it looks like still a work in progress, but at least it's starting to at least be. If they don't score, at least he's a threat again. So that's good. Um, it's just like, you just, it's the starts that that kill this team, you know? Like, yeah, they're competitive later in a game and and they close the gap and they fight back. Okay. That's all great. But you're always starting in a hole and you, you, like, you never seem to want to put your foot on the other team's throat. And that's just, even they finally tie it up at three. I mean, right away they get a, Toronto gets a power play and Simmons is allowed to stand in front and nobody's near him, you know? And, Oh, sorry. I know you look for positives, but uh, I, I, you know, not a ton. You know, not a ton. Um, I'm with you on the casting goal. That's good. The leads are running around, but um, just, just, uh, it's more the same. Just constantly with this team.
1: Yeah, and I mean, even with that that Wayne Simmons deflection goal, like watching it, that might have been Koskinen, even without being deflected. Like it, it didn't really change the puck too much. Probably no. threw Koskinen off a little bit, but. Yeah, just making it way too easy for the Toronto Maple Leafs, a team that they will see on a Saturday night as well. So it's not going to get any easier. And uh, I actually was texting with my sister back and forth about this game. And she says, like, well, at least Ottawa's is coming to town. And <laughs> they're still an NHL team. I mean, you got to play better than you did in this game if you expect to win. And I think that most people would probably agree, like, that's a winnable game for this Oilers hockey team. But, man, they they got to get their feet moving. they got to play with a little more intensity. To beat Ottawa, you need to work, because Ottawa is going to work, you know, like, that's the thing, Um, you know, last night,
2: uh, they had 22 shots against Vancouver in the first period, uh, and Van- they only scored once, Vancouver ended up winning the game kinda handily, but still, like, Ottawa shows up to play, you know, they, they're not gonna outskill you, but if you're not ready to work, you know, they can catch you, and um that's kind of the worst recipe, I think, right now for the Oilers, a team that, that wants to show up and work because they haven't been able to match that. Um, maybe that will be a magic elixir, Connor. Maybe they'll see a team work hard against them and they'll have to do the same. But I don't know. Like, I, as much as, you know, of course, it's a big game against Toronto on Saturday. You're now, what, uh, six points back of the Leafs? If no, eight points back of the Leafs? Like... You're already falling in a huge hole uh, on the season, so you gotta, you gotta win that game Saturday, and then, you, you know what, you need to take
1: advantage of Ottawa, but if you're not ready to play, you know, look out, the Sens can, they can, they can beat teams. If the Oilers could just channel their inner youthfulness of the Ottawa Senators, and work yeah. like that, man, it might not be so bad. Uh, a guy that a lot of people have wanted to get into the lineup, Evan Bouchard, um, I mean, maybe that could provide that spark, obviously. He doesn't, he doesn't exactly have that, uh, it, youthful exuberance he, he's very mature on the ice so I wouldn't expect him to bring a spark uh, getting all pumped up or anything but do you think that could help the team and uh, just, just change something up for the group
2: I mean, I guess so, I feel like you know they've kind of moved deck chairs on the Titanic a little bit, you know, like trying to change their fourth line or their sixth defenseman and and think that's gonna work and yeah i, I think you know Bouchard is, is shown that he's ready to play, and let's see him play, you know, I know he's got the nagging back injury which which can slow a guy down, obviously, but um I listen, I don't think Evan Bouchard is the magic cure for this team uh Sure, if he comes in and and maybe can provide a bit of a spark, that's great. But um, you know, you're starting to look at a rookie defenseman to be the the thing that changes the momentum of this team. I just, I don't see it. Like at least when Yamamoto came in, like last year, he. He brought that the same way we see him play this year like he goes hard to the hard areas and and created some problems for teams and you know bouchard i think you know shoots a puck a little bit has a little bit of offensive flair that's great but i just i i don't know like you put you you take out what caleb jones probably to put him in and does that does that magically change things around Uh, i'm not sure (laughs)
1: Oh, the old uh, deck chairs on the Titanic. Yeah, that's, it's, it's true. I mean, it's, it, you're kind of grasping for straws if you're just trying to insert someone into the lineup to provide a spark. They need more from their key guys, the guys that aren't going to be taken out of the lineup. Uh, just a few more, Corey, for you. Uh, you mentioned Kyler Yamamoto, tough break on the game winning goal on the penalty kill, unable to clear it. How about for this weekend? Uh, Miko Koskinen, can he go back to back, Leafs and Sins? Well, how bad
2: is Stuart Skinner? <laughs> like, how you bad saw, is he?
1: You saw a lot of him. What do you think of him?
2: Well, I, I mean, that was in junior, and that was years ago. I mean, obviously, he's he has a pedigree enough to get to this league, right? Like, he's played in the American Hockey League. He's, you know, he played in the Memorial Cup for Swift Current. He's played in big games. But, like, it, this team is, is not willing to go to him. And I understand he's not an NHL goalie at this stage of his career. He hasn't played a game yet. So, yeah, I, I get that, but... Is he that bad that you have to ride Miko Koskinen for the first ten to twelve games of the year? Like, what's the point? Then why is he on your roster if he can't play for you? Again, I'm not saying you put him in and he's going to steal you a game. He's going to make fifty saves or something like that. But. Is he that much worse than what Miko Koskinen is doing for you right now? I mean, Koskinen has made some saves, but he also seems to give up a goal a game. And when you're losing one goal games, you can't afford that. So, I, I would put him in. I'd put him in Saturday night at this point. I wouldn't wait for Ottawa. You know, I'd, I I think you need to beat the Ottawa Senators, so you play your best goalie. You should. Be, you want to beat Toronto, but you know, does does Koskinen over Skinner make that game more winnable? I I, I guess, but still, like I I I think maybe if Koskinen gets a couple of days off to rest and get away from the game, it might help him.
1: Saturday night, Hockey Night in Canada against the Maple <laughs> Leaf yeah, Stewart that's Skinner the one thing. debut. Hey, I mean, you said it though. Like, I, this guy's played on big stages in his life. It's not like he's, uh, you know, gonna shy away from this moment, even to the Memorial Cup, right? So, yep. uh, why not? I, I'm not to- totally opposed to that idea. I think, you know, the way things are going, you gotta try something and see what you have in him. And, you know, hopefully there's a point where you send him back down to Bakersfield and he's their number one guy and develops uh, in the more traditional manner. But, Hey, why not go for it? I'm here for it, Corey.
2: Yeah, I, you know what? Normally I would say no, don't do it, but at this stage, like, why not? You know, why not try something different? Um, and, and for that matter, I, I, and Hernan is, uh, Hernan Salas, my producer of The Night Show. He, uh, he gets really fired up really upset about them not putting that uh, dry Drysdale Yamamoto Nugent Hopkins line back together and again why not like you know it's worked in the past like why not try something different it just seems like that, that they don't want to screw with the top 6 right now um you know uh, arvey has been better than i think people expected him to be but he hasn't scored uh, Cassian didn't score on that top line like the top line's not generating anything 5 on 5 now either so why not break that line up and and, and go to something that worked for you when it mattered and uh I, I just i don't know what the opposition is to that in their dressing room why they won't go to that it doesn't make
1: any sense you mentioned Hernan. i can see him right now <laughs> as he's doing their post game show we're taping this interview thursday night uh, I can tell when he's getting fired up. The head's just bobbing back and forth, and uh, I don't even like to bring up the possibility of reuniting <laughs> that line because he'll—he just loses it. He'll yell at you like they didn't do it oh, until yeah. the last minute of the Chicago series. Why would they do it now? And uh, that's why we love her now in the post-game show. He brings the heat. Corey, thanks a lot for doing this today, and uh, hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast down the road and hopefully more uh, optimism with this Oilers <laughs> hockey team. Yeah, it'd be nice to talk about a winning team, or at least some positives, but you're stretching to find something that's good. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate it, Connor. Anytime. I'll always be around when you need me. And, Corey, just one final question. I wrote this down for myself mm-hmm. to ask you this. Uh, the MCTV podcast, you and Mark Majot, <laughs> I, I got a chance to listen to the first episode. Uh, really enjoyed it. Glad to hear you two on a show together again. I haven't seen WandaVision, so I might, I might wait before I tune into the next couple episodes. But how did this podcast get going?
2: Uh, it's something like I, I feel for the last about 10 years or so, Mark and I have been like, uh, exchanging texts after every nerd thing that happened, or we'd sit in the jock lounge at work when he worked with us and just... Totally nerd out and then somebody would come in and start talking sports and be like, Oh yeah, yeah, sports, sports. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's fun. Like we, uh, obviously we've worked together. We get along really well. We have the same interests and it's, it's, you know what, Connor? I, I really look forward to doing something that's not sports, like something where I can just kind of relax and not have to worry about, um, plus minus or stats or anything like that and just kind of enjoy things. So it's, it's been a lot of fun to, to do something a little bit different and, and get away from the negativity around the, uh, the hockey team and everything else. So yeah, I mean, we've done what three episodes now and, Another one coming this weekend. It's you know, we're having a lot of fun. So if you're uh, at all into nerd culture, MCTV podcast. It's uh, yeah, we're, we've started that up. It's been uh, it's been good.
1: Apple, Spotify, all the all the places to find your podcast. Right. Uh, yes, exactly. Mark handles all that stuff. He's like
2: totally into all that back end stuff. So he does all that. I just show up and talk. It's great. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I got to get Majot
1: to like run this podcast because I don't know much <laughs> about it. Like I talk to the, the guys at the Hockey Podcast Network. They're just kind of like telling me what to do. And I, I just hope it gets on, on the systems and hope he will download yep. it. That's about it for me. So there you go. <laughs> all right, Corey, thanks a lot for doing this. Anytime, Connor. Thanks. That is Corey Graham, the host of The Corey Graham Show. Very appropriate title on TSN 1260. He alongside Hernan Salas. Monday through Friday from 6 until 9. Also give Corey a follow on Twitter, at Corey Graham, and of course the MCTV podcast alongside Mark Majoa. Right now, as we like to do here on the Other Connor Podcast, we're going to talk to a former member of the Edmonton Oilers, Andy Sutton. He played 52 games with the Oil back in 2011-2012. He had three goals, seven assists. 80 penalty minutes, and as you're going to hear in this interview, he wanted to make it a lot more games with the team, but unfortunately some things just came up and it wasn't able to happen. Andy, thanks a lot for doing this today. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. How
1: are you doing? Oh, I'm doing very good. Uh, We really appreciate you hopping on the podcast here, talking about your time with the Edmonton Oilers. And I know you grew up out in Ontario, but were you a fan of the Oilers at all? Did you get a chance to watch the team in their heyday?
0: Oh, I was uh, I was an Oilers fan through and through. I mean, I was born in 1975, so I mean those those teams through the 80s nearly defined my childhood. And you know, I was I was Wayne Gretzky in the street and Paul Coffey in the street before uh, before I knew uh, anything about what what was really going on there. So to get a chance to come back in the latter years of my career was uh, was a huge thrill for sure.
1: Well, we'll get into your time with the Edmonton Oilers, of course, but I want to ask you about playing at Michigan Tech. Um, You go there, you play four seasons, then you end up signing with the Sharks organization, I believe, as an undrafted free agent. What's the process like for a guy who goes undrafted, and then you have a very strong senior season, you put up 40 points in only 38 games. Were there a lot of teams coming after you looking to sign you? Like, How how did that whole process happen?
0: Well, I, uh, you know, my college career was interesting. I I signed as a as a forward out of uh, St. Michael's College and St. Michael's Buzzers when they were before they were a major junior uh, team. I I went there for my great what was then grade grade thirteen, um, and, and played and went to school there and got a scholarship to tack as a forward, and I was you know my first year was uh, le- less than less than Sterling, second year was similar, and during that second season uh, was the NHL lockout of uh, I think ninety ninety four ninety five and. During that lockout, Pierre Paget, uh, the famous coach, came in and spent a couple of weeks with us. He was friends with the coach at the time there at Tech, Bob Mancini. And Pierre sort of, you know, looked over the, the team for the two weeks that he was there and completed an assessment. Bob called me into his office after Pierre left and he said, would you like to hear Pierre's commentary about you? I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. So I, uh, he said, all it said was try Sutton at the fence. So Bob said, "Would you have any interest?" And I was like, "Yeah." I felt like I had nothing to lose. You know, things were, things were, you know, didn't look like they were fast tracking to any sort of like, you know, incredible success uh, to that point. So I said, "Yeah, let's try to make the switch." So I switched immediately. Obviously, it took a little bit to cut my teeth, and then I ended up having a shoulder surgery um, that I sort of contended with through my junior campaign, and that was a, uh, you know, started to see some glimmers of things, and then I stayed. At school, turned down an internship with the U.S. Navy. I was studying engineering, and I decided to give it one last kick at the can before the senior campaign. I had a great summer, stayed up at school, trained hard, certainly, but I, I think I had a nice balance of, of fun and, and work, and then got into that senior campaign, and um, everything I sort of touched worked that year, and I went from being an undrafted, um, guy who probably never thought he'd honestly play in the NHL to having 14 NHL teams try to sign me and paid me, you know, paid me top dollar, offered me top dollar to do so. So left, uh, chose the sharks at the time and actually turned, turned down a little more money from the St. Louis blues, went into that franchise and, you know, got to stand shoulder to shoulder with the, you know, with the, uh, Bob Rouses and Gary suitors and Jeff Nortons and Brian Marchments, um, of the world and, and really got a chance to to learn from some of the best and such a such an incredible story from the franchise with, uh, with such amazing veteran players. So felt felt like, uh, in retrospect, I think I made the right choice.
1: So at what point in your collegiate career did you think, you know what, maybe I can do this at the NHL level?
0: <laughs> well, it probably wasn't until the fourth year. You know, I, I always worked really hard and I think like deep down I thought, wow, how how great would that be? But I, I'm not I'm not so sure that it was ever something that in my mind was was something that I was certain of. You know, if you'd asked me during my junior campaign, I might have I said to you, like, you know, I'll, I'll give it one more kick at the can, and if I can, you know, play a year or two in, you know, Coast or American League or in Europe, I, I think that was what I would have thought would have happened, and I, I had the intention at that time to make sure that, that I used my education fully. So I had planned on... Getting my engineering degree and, and going to medical school, quite honestly. So I, it all kind of swept swept me away, um, and happened very quickly. You know, I got asked to leave school right away and go play in, in Lexington, Kentucky, for the uh, Sharks affiliate. I finished the season there, um, and then I got called up from there to be part of the Black Aces for the San Jose Sharks um, playoff run. They then kept me there that summer, and uh, completed a, a second shoulder surgery. And I stayed there and trained with their with their uh, with the team trainer for the entire summer. Ended up going into camp that year and I made the team as a, as a rookie, uh, which was which was crazy. So I went from, you know, six months earlier having like six dollars in my bank account to, you know, like eight hundred eight hundred grand and 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 then making making an NHL team. So it really was a, was a crazy uh, and rapid transformation. And then beyond that, you know, it just kind of uh, took it as it came and it was, uh, you know. And then, you know, lo and behold, 15 years later, it came to an end. So it was, uh, it was a really, uh, incredible and wild ride, but certainly one that I, that I feel endlessly
1: thankful for. Yeah. That, I mean, that is crazy thinking, you know, planning to go to med school like that. And then all of a sudden you're in the NHL playing with some of the players, Jeff Norton, Brian Marchman, some great players of the Sharks organization. Yeah. We're going to talk about your time in Edmonton, but I want to ask you about playing with the Atlanta Thrashers. Now, from afar we kind of joked about the fan base and you know would hockey work in Atlanta but you were there for a couple of years what did you make of the whole NHL franchise down in Georgia
0: Well so I'll I'll, I'll preface it a little bit so I you know I, I with the Sharks and having all the all those you know mainstay veteran players and there were it was it was tougher back then to get your start and and you know being a young player so at that point in time I ended up getting exposed in the expansion draft and got picked up by the Minnesota Wild. Well, I, it was great, obviously, to be part of that inaugural franchise. And I went in there. Um, I went in there as a as a defenseman, and they tried to turn me back into a forward. So Jacques Lemaire, how do you say no to Jacques Lemaire, right? So I, I, I'm dabbling. I'm kind of back and forth, and, and it's it's going okay, you know. And then I'd sit out for long periods of time, and then I would get thrown in as a forward. They put me in front of out on the power play. So I had this sort of like, you know, crisis of identity probably more than anything. I was fighting, you know, which really probably wasn't my natural instinct, you know. And I, so I had a lot of things I was trying to do and hadn't really, hadn't really found my way. So uh, I played. I think I played a couple games as a defenseman, and I went to I went to Mike Ramsey, the assistant coach, another legend, right? So just you know, just legends everywhere in and around that organization. And I said, Rammer, I, I just feel like I'm meant to be a defenseman in this league. Without batting an eye, he turned and looked me in the face and he said, You'll never be a defenseman in the NHL. So that was the fuel I needed. So I went in the next day and I, I went into Doug Risebrough, right now, <laughs> just another icon of the game and who was the GM at the time. And I said, uh, Doug, I said, I don't know if there's any way you could trade me anywhere where somebody would want me as a defenseman, but I, I just have a, a very strong instinct that I'm meant to be a defenseman in this league and I would appreciate it if there's any way that you could do it. Well, he traded me about a week later to Atlanta. And um, I went into Atlanta. And you know, really, that franchise was, you know, still figuring itself out as well. You know, it was in, it's still a young franchise that hadn't experienced much success. I did end up spending, I think, the better part of five and a half seasons there, and including a lockout year, so really like six and a half years. And then I lived there for about three years after I stopped playing there. The whole time I was in New York, I'd go back to Atlanta for the summer. But it was, uh, it was, it was really like my second coming as a defenseman there. And then Bob Hartley came in, and you know he was a, a huge part, I think, to my ultimate success. Because when he first came in, he said, he said this to me. He said, Andy, I've heard you can play the game. You haven't shown it yet that you can do it consistently. But I said, he said, I, I'll tell you this. We're going to find out. He said, I'm going to play you 30 minutes a night, and we're going to find out whether or not you can live up to your, uh, you know, to your potential. And and he did. He played me. I went out at, you know every second shift. I played against all the top lines. You know, o, Ovechkin. In his prime, we had you know we played eight times a year against washington with with Ovechkin and that whole crew and and Tampa Bay with you know the Cavalier saint louis Pro those guys and and it was really the the place and time i think where I was really able to carve out my my identity in the game and, and certainly the self confidence and uh and consistency that i was that I was uh, fighting for.
1: So after your time with the Atlanta Thrashers organization, like you said, you go to the New York Islanders, then you're with the Senators. Back in 2010, you signed a two-year deal with the Anaheim Ducks, but they do end up trading you in that offseason to the Oilers in exchange for Curtis Foster. How do you find out about that news, and what was your initial reaction?
0: Well, I, I'd i had a very challenging year in Anaheim. Um, the first year I was there, I I actually I was I was assistant, assistant captain through training camp, and things were really... You know, I'd say, you know, sort of advancing off of the, the time that I'd spent in, in New York and, and that great season I had in uh 2010, and then going into Ottawa, I had a, I had a great uh, run with the Senators there and was able to really take that and, and bring that into Anaheim. And I um, the first game of the year, we were down 4 nothing in the first or second period in Detroit, and I was playing on the top pair with Lugamir Vysnovsky, which was like, you know, the dream come true, and and I was really poised for what I thought was going to be a continuation of the season prior, and I start a fight with uh, Ruslan Saleh, uh, rest his soul, and um, I end up I end up shattering my thumb in like 15 places uh, in the fight, so I have to have obviously emergency surgery to put the thumb back together, and um, I ended up missing a significant amount of time. Um, and then really just never got back in the fray with things and I think the the organization was a little disenfranchised you know based on the player they thought they were signing and and I definitely didn't live up to to my end of the bargain so that summer um, and I wasn't necessarily expecting to be traded I was certainly ready to to you know try to try to right the wrongs of, of the things that happened the year prior and hope that there'd be a opportunity for me to do that but uh, I can remember i was I was actually uh, playing golf and, and I got a, got a phone call that I had been traded and in a lot of ways I was I was relieved. Um, you know I, it was such an honor to to get a chance to come up to Edmonton. I absolutely loved my time in Ottawa, the chance to go and, and play you know back home in Canada and, and I was really close to family. My family's in Kingston, Ontario, so it was, it was really incredible for me to be so close to home and then now to have a chance to go back. And and really, you know, be in with an organization from day one was 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 great. And then the just the honor of, like I said at the start of, the, of our talk, like to be able to go and play for that one, of, what I think is the most story franchise. Um, at least in my mind was was just absolutely incredible, you know And then getting to go there and and seeing all these amazing legends of the game come through the locker room You know Wayne came through and and mess came through and Glenn Anderson came through and Jersey came through and I was just like I couldn't believe it, you know, and to, to be there and be part of the fabric of that culture um, And sadly it only ended up being a year even though I did did sign a, a second year um, I had a, I had a really what was a career-ending injury um, the summer before heading heading into to the what ended up being the lockout year. Um, Tom Rennie called me into the office at the end of the season and I had the contract in place for the next year and he said just so you know, and this time I'm almost 38 years old, you know, so he's like Andy, you know, you, next year we're anticipating you're only going to play maybe like half the games and I said to him, I said Tom, you you know me better than that, you know I'm, you, you know I'm not going to accept that, so I went into that summer and I was you know, I was hell-bent to make sure that I was mm-hmm. in the best shape of my life, so I was training twice a day, and um, I, I ended up breaking off a piece of the base of my femur in my knee joint, nice. um, doing some jump squats, and probably just training it properly and working harder than I needed to, um, so I, I had to have a surgery, obviously, to to remove that big piece of bone, and then there was a experimental surgery that they were going to do on me next to, to, to try to, you know, sustain the career, and I'd already had 14 surgeries prior to that, so I that got to the point where uh that that was it the writing was kind of on the wall and um you know unfortunately the last game i played was not was not the last game i thought i'd play with with what happened with the injury and the lockout so it was uh, it was kind of a uh it was kind of uh, anticlimactic in the end
1: Tough way to go out for sure. Uh, just going to the act of the time where you get traded to the Edmonton Oilers. I mean, what was the thought looking at that team? I know they had a young Jordan Eberle, Taylor Hall going into their second years. I think Ryan Nugent Hopkins just getting going. But there was also some veterans in Sean Horkoff, Hemsky yourself. That team had potential. Did you guys think at the start of the year like, hey, maybe we're not a powerhouse, but we could surprise some people?
0: Well, we did, you know, and with Javi Bulan and Matt and Brian Smith, who I just had lunch with today. Uh, he, he lives here close to me in in, uh, in in Tennessee, but you know, we had we had a great cast, and I think we were, you know, we had a great record. I think the first ten or twenty games of the season, um, you know, the youth the youth there, and you know get when I when I was announced that I was getting traded there I was excited I mean I was I had really relished the opportunity to care and connect with the young guys in the latter stages of my career I loved it you know and I felt as much as a as much like a player coach as a as, as a player at that point in my career and I I loved it so getting to come in there and you know spend time with 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 Nuge in his first year and and really you know try to care for him as best I could and you know Maggie Paraby was there, and uh, you know anton landers was there, and there were just some incredible young players, you know Halsey and Evie Evie of course, and um you know uh Sam Ganye i mean just just absolutely incredible uh, young people and it was an honor for me you know i felt it felt so great to be connected and and to, to try to do my part and and then we, you know with with hork and and Hobby and Smitty and myself and a few of the other veterans, you know, Eric Belanger, we had we had a good we had a good cast, you know, we really did. And even with with Dubnik as a backup, I mean he was definitely up and coming and he'd come in some games, he'd just be like, This guy's gonna be a phenom, you know, and it was it was all there and, and one thing I realized in retrospect is just how hard it is to win consistently at that level because the all the players are great. There's no nights off. And then a lot of the teams just figure out a way to be more cohesive and have a more sustained approach to consistency. And, and I don't think that I think that's what we lacked in the end. I think we were missing we were missing the core consistency that you need to be to be uh, to go the distance. You know, to to, to be on the right side of, of your wins and losses after 82 games, and then to figure out how to. How to excel through a long and arduous playoffs, you know, uh, is is really, you know, when you see these teams that do it start to finish, it's really a, a testament, obviously, to the players that are there, but the organization and support, the coaching, the you know, the way the the ways in which these teams and organizations come together to sort of uphold it all is uh, is is really a it's a it's a collection of moving parts, certainly
1: obviously sad this past october the passing of longtime oilers attending joey moss and big loss in the city and the hockey world when you think back to joey was there any story that stands out from your time with the team
0: well i mean he was he was he was just such a um larger than life you know and, and and iconic in his own in his own way and i mean i had had a chance to to get to know him a little bit when I would played with other teams and I'd come through and, and, um, you know, I had friends that had played for the orders and heard lots of stories and then getting a chance to spend the time with him. And he's just such a, he was just such a beautiful person. And, um, he, he just, he lit he lit us all, all the time. You know, he, he, um, he always kept us feeling, um, light and, and, um, I always felt, uh, I don't know. I always felt like he was kind of like a, like a really beautiful and bright light in all of it. So to get a chance to spend, you know, most every day with him, especially when we were home was, was a, was a great privilege and, and something I'll never forget.
1: Another thing with your time with the Edmonton Oilers, kind of uh, unfortunate, uh, a couple suspensions for some hits. So uh, what did you do to Brendan Shanahan in your playing career that he just had it out for you and was throwing these suspensions your way?
0: Well, I mean, you know, I I certainly always played him hard, but I don't think that was <laughs> I don't think that was the emphasis on it. I, I in hindsight and all that, you know, I, I I was a definitely a poster child for change. You know, there were some monumental changes happening at that time, and they were upheld by a guy that was willing to do whatever he had to do to uphold it to change the culture of the game. So I came up through the Brian Marchman era, right? And, oh yeah, and I was. You know, it, it immediately, you know, I hit hard in college and then coming into the Sharks and watching what, what mush, what mush did night in and night out and the way that he played. I mean, I was hooked. I was like, that's, that's the player I want to embody. You know, I want to, I want to, I want to work hard. I want to make a good first pass. I want to kill penalties. I want to stick up for my teammates and I want to try to catch people in open ice. And I, you know, I made a, I made a career of that, you know, catching guys with their head down in neutral zone and, and, um, and hitting hard, and, and it became in the end that was that was the piece that was really you know the, the writing on the wall for me that that I either needed to drastically change the way I played the game to stick around, or that it was just time for me to start thinking about bowing out. You know, and I, I remember back uh, after the second suspension, I came to the rink and I'd been back playing for two or three or four games, and and I got to practice or morning skate or whatever it was, and I remember Tom Rennie grabbed me and he said, "Hey, can you come in the office for a minute?" And I came in. And they had the big screen loaded up with some video, and like everybody was in there, like you know, Tambelli was in there, and like every the whole brass was in there, the whole coaching staff, and, and they had they had Shanny on speakerphone, and they said you might sit down for a second, and I said sure, and they had they had highlights queued up from the previous three or four games of like these different instances where you know, just to Sandy's account, he's like, I could have suspended you for each and every one of these hits based on what we're trying to do with this whole principal point of contact thing. And
3: really? and I
0: and I was literally stunned. I was like, Holy crap, like I I am in it I'm in it now. Like I've played this way my whole career. This is how I play. I don't think about it. It just it's just the way it is just the way it is. And um at that point in time, I knew, I knew something I had to give and, and, and it did. It affected, it affected me. It affected the way that I, that I played the game. It affected the way that I, um, was, was able to sort of carve out space for myself on the ice. And, um, you know, I think it was sort of like, uh, like the death of the dinosaur. You know, it was like, I was like the, the final, the final, one of the final T-Rexes, you know, <laughs> I finally fell to the earth. So that's, that's kind of what it was in a way. I think I was part of a, I was part of a you know a time span that that had a that had a duration on it. It had a shelf life, and and um, you know I definitely got the got the most out of it the way that I played. Certainly, you know. Certainly added to my career and in the end it was the, uh, probably the Achilles. So that and the fact that I was almost 40. So it was, uh, it was probably time either way for me to, for me to move on and let the, let the younger players play.
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, like, you, you talk about it. That's how you played your whole career. And then just to be told, you can't do that anymore. I think of guys like you, Rafi Torres, like, the game just kind of changed and had you guys played in a different era, like, you would have been on Don Cherry's Rock 'em Sock 'em every year. You'd have okay. your own segment.
0: Yeah, for sure. And just, I just—I feel fortunate enough that you know I was able to, able to grab a solid you know fifteen years of it. You know, and if I if I if I'd gotten to it you know five or ten years before that, I. I, I probably would have, you know, probably would have had an even more successful career because I think that player through the through the '90s was even more sought after, you know. So, yeah. you know, the you know the Hatch the whole Hatcher era and Scott Stevens era, I think I would have been I think I would have been even more sought after through the '90s and and early 2000s. So it's um, you know, but at the same point in time, I, I carved out a, a great long career, and I'm, I'm I wouldn't change a thing. You know, I, I, I look back on it now and think about some of the players I hurt and, and um, you know, the lives that they that they lead now. And I, and I sure hope that, that, that none of the effects have, have carried forward. You know, that's the thing I think more than anything now. And looking at it now, owning an equipment company, I think about the protection. I have a, a young son who's kind of starting to gravitate towards the game and I think about his health and wellness, and, and I'm sure glad that the that the league took the position they did because everybody's sort of, you know, embodying the NHL and the way that the players play. So in a lot of ways, we have a real responsibility to uphold the game in a certain fashion to make sure that it, that it it it's, it can be fierce, but at the same point in time, like we don't have to be out to hurt one another. You know, it can it can be uh, more like a rugby style where, you know, you tackle with purpose, and it it can be about you know. Separating the player from the puck or whatever it doesn't have to be so much about you know putting a guy in the third row or, or knocking a guy out cold in the neutral zone. So I think uh, I think all in all the game's in a better place.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm going to bring up Verbero Hockey in a second here. Just one final question for you though. With your career, Uh what was it like with the Battle of Alberta? Like, was that a game? Could you sense it with the with the fans, with the teammates? Like, did it ratchet up just a little bit taking on the Flames?
0: Oh yeah. I mean, I, I think in general playing playing all the. Canadian teams, it was it was pretty cool, and I'm sure the I'm sure the guys are are in a in a real battle zone now. It's and just getting at it every other night, it has to be pretty intense. But um, yeah, I mean the the Battle of Alberta was real. I mean you you we all heard about it, right? And then you come in and you're part of it. And the, just the proximity and, and, the, and, the, and the long, the long time, you know, storytelling and effects of, of, of those um, of those battles are have long been told, and I think in general, you know, it's upheld by the media and by the fans, and, and you, you definitely you definitely feel it. You definitely feed into it, and you definitely uh, you definitely play those games a little little with a little different purpose.
1: So, Addy, you. Been out of the game for a few years now and you mentioned you getting into the equipment game uh Verbero Hockey. Tell us a little bit about the company and how you got involved.
0: Yeah, well, like like everything it's kind of an all roads lead to Rome, you know, and and I um, you know, after leaving the game, I I um, I worked in a I worked on a bunch of different stuff, but I I it ended up leading me to working as president of a of a hockey company, multi-brand hockey company. And while I was with that company, I I was part of some of the acquisitions that occurred while I was there and, and uh, lent some money to the company to help grow some programs. And, and then, uh, lo and behold, sort of right around the time COVID hit, there was an opportunity for me to, to exit that. And I was sort of thinking about an exit strategy anyways and really wanted to go out and do my own thing. So... Verbero Bar- was one of the brands that that company owned and and I um so I left some interests on the on the table and took took some equity off the table and then brought the Verbero brand outside um, with the full intention to to run it my way to really take everything I've learned in the game, working on the game. You know when I was at that company, I was touching everything from manufacturing sourcing to product development to you know sales and marketing. Um, even warehouse management. I mean, I really learned the entire back end of what a hockey brand would, would need on that side of things and then, you know, sort of cascaded that with, with everything that I learned within the game from all of my time in the game and then really looked at paralleling that with everything that's wrong with, with, with equipment manufacturers, typical manufacturers, typical service-related items. So took the best of from Berbero applied that to the best of everything else I'd ever learned, brought in a lot of support products. We own our own manufacturing on the apparel, the gameware, custom bags, so we have a lot of control there. And then we went ahead and created a proprietary software system that allows us to auto-generate team stores. So in essence, we create team stores for our teams, leagues, and associations that come in. And this is in addition to selling to individuals on Berbero.com. We sell player direct to everybody. So we pass the best possible pricing along to the end customer. And then the team stores allow the teams, leagues, associations 24-7, 365 access to all of their team logo pro- uh, products in addition to all the sticks and gloves and, and helmets and accessories and everything else. So that's been a, that's been a paradigm shift in the industry. And then we also basically obliterated the the base model of sales within the hockey industry. We we allow our reps to sell in a territorialist system so they can sell anywhere to anybody. And then we let our reps build their own sub rep forces so they can work with their closest friends and colleagues, coaches, trainers, people they might know, they can build their own rep forces We just surpassed the 200 rep threshold. So, to put that in perspective, I think Bauer had 50 pre-COVID. So, we're we're four times bigger than they are now on the rep side of things, Um, and it's it's growing exponentially every single week. Um, We focused on key partnerships, um, high-level partnerships with a lot of different associations and and, and media outlets, including an upcoming partnership with Elite Prospects. We're um, we're really utilizing the Team Store software. And our core products and the fact that we own manufacturing on the apparel and gameware side to really turn these custom programs faster, more cost-effectively. And then we have a revenue share model that basically kicks back to the organizations based on sales through the stores. So we've, we've, really, um, you know, we've really created a sort of an ecosystem, I would say, of sales. Our, our, our sales commissions are also three times the industry average, so we pay our reps three times more than any of the other hockey brands. Um, and then as I mentioned, we let them earn on the, on their subrep sales as well. So we really, we really tried to catch, um, all of the things in the industry that are wrong with it and then put it all into Berbero and it's, it's working. People are, people are really gravitating towards it. And then on top of that, we have top tier product. I mean, we have the lightest stick on the market. We have the only full carbon fiber skate. I mean, we have amazing glove, we have amazing st- and amazing pants. that's our model. We've got one amazing product from each category, and then we just relentlessly work to to perfect those products and make them better better. Um, otherwise, that's the product that's in our line. So we're not trying to confuse anybody with like twelve different price points. We're all about bringing value and performance and innovation to every product. Um, and then and then we we heavily we heavily vet each product before we put it into the into the lineup. So, in general, people can expect you know full service. They can expect custom, uh, more custom options, availability of all of these things in real time, and then top tier products at, at player direct pricing. So that's the other thing you'll see. You know we're uh, we're significantly less than the than the other brands, especially when you look at the caliber of our goods. You, you compare it against other brands' top tier goods, and we're 40 to 60 percent less.
1: So, at Verbaro Hockey on Twitter, verbaro.com, and uh, I've taken a look at the website. Easy to navigate, looks great, and uh, definitely check them out. Andy Sutton, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast. Best of luck with Verbaro, and uh, hopefully we can get you back on sometime soon, maybe talk about the Oilers.
0: Yeah, it would be great. I'd love it any time, and I appreciate you having me on. Stay safe.
1: Andy Sutton, former member of the Edmonton Oilers, over 670 games played in the NHL over 13 seasons. Just a hell of a career coming out of college as an undrafted free agent. And uh we really do appreciate him coming on the show. Check out Verbero.com. That's the website for his new company. A lot of really cool stuff there. Really innovative equipment. So check it out, Verbero.com. We're going to wrap up tonight's show with an interview I had with Sliver Delory. He, of course, a longtime member of the Edmonton Oilers equipment staff. A lifer when it comes to that. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Sliver21. Sliver, how you doing tonight, man? Good,
3: buddy. how
1: are you? Oh, I'm doing really good and I appreciate you uh, giving us some time to hop on the podcast here and uh, maybe uh, give us some stories that we don't necessarily know too much about because you've had a pretty awesome career and you spent a lot of time with the Edmonton Oilers organization. For those who don't know, how did you get into the whole equipment game and, and where did it all start?
3: Uh, back then it was a different era. Um, my dad started bringing me into the room on weekends because he knew the the training staff at the time, Sparky and Barry, and I was seven or eight years old. And I, I actually, I always, I always make a joke that Joey Moss was my first boss, because uh, to keep me out of the way, they'd tell me to go help Joe. So I'd walk into the room and say, "What can I do?" And Joey would start telling me what to do. Um, graduated into the work of a stick boy uh, through junior high and high school. When I got out of high school, I was, I was. I was going to be a student at the U of A for all of the two weeks, uh, but the '96 World Cup was going on, and most of the order's training staff was with Team Canada at the World Cup, so uh, I got asked to to fill in and help out for the month that was happening, and all of a sudden, I had a job offer by the end of the month, so I never went back to university. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's a, it'd be a tough job to decline. So when you start off working with Joey Moss, obviously an iconic figure in the city of Edmonton, how is he as a boss?
3: The best boss I've ever had. He, he knew exactly what needed to be done, when it needed to be done, and how. He uh, he was dialed in from the day I met him. I know Spark put a lot of time in uh, working with him as well, so you know all those traits just got passed on to everybody else. He couldn't outwork the guy.
1: We had you on with Jason Greger on shortly after he passed away back in October. It was just, uh, it was really crazy the outpouring that we saw from this city. Such an iconic figure that we lost. Was there anything, you know, stories, lessons that maybe stick out to you from your time working with him?
3: Oh, I mean, I've never met anybody that enjoyed the day more than Joe. I mean, even when the boys were riding them, I mean, he was still, he was just in love with, with being. In the sport of hockey, you know, and when he went to the uh, to the Edmonton Football Club there in the summers, Mister Mandriziak and his sons just brought him right in and kept the kept the spirit alive. Like Joe, just he lived every day to the, to the full extent, man. It was awesome.
1: How many times did you hear La Bamba?
3: <laughs> I used to be the DJ for it. I was the guy standing at the CD player pushing play when he was ready. I was I was his I was his roadie. <laughs>
1: someone had to do it right uh, yeah, someone, is,
3: someone had to cue the music yeah. <laughs> so
1: you were in the room since you were 7 years old I gotta ask like you're in elementary school being a stick boy for the Oilers were you the most popular kid in your class?
3: well the stick boy stuff didn't start till junior high ok ok uh, but yeah but you know I it was actually something that I thought was normal so I didn't tell a lot of people about it they'd just be like What'd you, what did you do last night well I worked I, uh, I went to my 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 part-time job after school and I never really told a lot of guys in junior high that I was doing it and then high school it kind of came out a little more when I realized that it was cool <laughs> so I started just started bragging a little more and yeah I mean I had good friends in high school though nobody ever kind of overstepped their bounds and used me for stuff so it was, it was good
1: so when you're in junior high then as this sick boy like what what era was that who are you uh, talking to hanging out with on a daily basis
3: I didn't hang out with a lot of guys, but, uh, there was one night I still only had my learner's, uh, permit and, uh, my phone did ring in the middle of the night to go give a, a couple players a ride home. And, uh, I didn't tell mom or dad. I just woke up and, and, uh, went to the old, uh, sidetrack cafe and, uh, picked the, picked the gentleman up and took them home and I went back home and I woke up and went to school the next morning. <laughs> <laughs> they might be hearing that story for the first time right now. I won't give any names. No, no. Sure,
1: yeah. I'm not even going to ask. Kind of reminds me of, like, Goodfellas. Like, you just went there, you did the dirty work, and uh, maybe yeah. the parents don't even have to know.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so, when you were with the team, like, what, what was a, a, let's just say, a game day like for you working behind the scenes?
3: You, right after school ended, um, I'd get there. So, usually around 3.30, 4 o'clock, I'd show up. Um, we'd finish folding the towels that uh, hadn't been done for the, uh, from the morning skate. Uh, we'd get all of our Gatorade made and ice down and, and prepped. And then, uh, we, we were fortunate enough to to go up to the media lounge and get our dinners and eat up there real quick. And then, uh, come back down, prep the benches, start running errands for trainers, going to, of course they'd always... Tell you to go get speed grease or a bucket of steam and fool you for a for a, a little bit and um yeah every now and then like uh, a player would want you to help them warm up like even just like play sticks they might have been just bored and asking you just because they saw you standing there and then uh, game started and you just started running I mean you're, you're mostly there just to assist trainers and make sure that the uh, the little things are done picking up tape clearing garbage vacuuming the room, prepping the room for when the guys come in between periods, then, then of course, out to the beds to fill bottles. And you're literally working until 11 or 12 o'clock at night if it's a late game, and then you go home, crash, and go to school the next day.
1: <laughs> Not the most typical uh, part-time job for a guy in junior high. So you graduate high school, like you said, and you were going to go to the University of Alberta. Things change. You become the assistant equipment manager. What is something maybe people don't know that goes on? Like, it's a pretty busy job for you guys like it's, it's not showing up at five o'clock is it
3: no um we developed a phrase that says i don't work nine to five i work start to finish um like we're we're there three hours before anybody shows up usually in the mornings and you're there until a couple hours after the game is over at night so a game day is some some game days can be an 18 hour day uh Depending on, on when the game actually starts and if it goes to overtime, uh, practice days are short. They're usually eight to ten hour days, right? So, um, yeah, it's just there's a lot of hours you put in a lot of hours, but they're also really enjoyable hours. You really, you really do get a kick out of uh, just being in the room and joking with the guys. There is work to be done, but it's and it's serious when it needs to be serious. But man, is a fun when it's time to be fun.
1: So I've heard people talk about it, like, when you're the equipment staff and an opposing team comes in, do you have any responsibilities dealing with their equipment, visiting a team?
3: Um, the assistants and the third guy do. So the third guy is usually called the truck driver. He actually picks the team's equipment up and the visiting team trainers at the airport and uh, brings them in, unpacks them, does all their laundry if they're wet from, that, from coming in from a game or a practice. And uh, the assistant assistant core manager will also help the visiting teams out if there's anything that needs to be fixed that they can't fix on the road. Um, Yeah, and it's cordial. Like, it goes back and forth because everybody helps everybody out because you're eventually going to be on the road in their building, right? So you want to make sure you go out of your way to, to take care of all the guys as professional as possible because you might need them down the road.
1: So let's say, I mean, a, a team wraps up a game coming from the East Coast. They fly into Alberta, into Edmonton. Uh, someone has to go pick up their training stuff. Like, are you rolling into the arena, you know, ten at night to get all this stuff done?
3: Oh, your 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 night starts at two in the morning when the plane arrives. Yeah, yeah, you 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 preset the locker room up, and then you, yeah, you wait for the team to show up, and you get all their stuff unloaded, hung. With them, and then you do their laundry so that they can do a game day skate or a practice the next morning. So, a lot of time, I've, I've slept a lot at the rink. Uh, there was actually a time when I was just out of high school, I was just in '96 there, full time with the team, and I wanted to move out of my parents' house and uh, get a place, but I didn't have enough money for a deposit, so I actually slept at the rink and nobody knew it for about a month or two. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd, I'd crash on the couch at night, and then uh, I'd wake up in the morning before Barry Stafford showed up, and I'd go across the street to the Fireside restaurant, get breakfast and wait for Barry to drive in, and then I'd walk in and be good morning, Staff.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I miss the old Fireside there. Uh, I yeah. was going to say, so you weren't trying to pretend like you were the first one in the building, last to leave, or anything?
3: No, I, 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 I'd, I'd usually stay and work out after practice or a game, and then... I'd always tell the guys I'd finish the laundry. And then when they left, I just would order some food, <laughs> eat, crash on the couch. And then, uh, yeah, like I said, do my little shtick in the morning and, and make sure that I was uh, uh, after the boss showed up.
1: So you were with the team till 2006. What changed from your perspective from the time you started as an equipment manager to the year 2006 when you ended up being done with the position?
3: Uh, the business of hockey. Um Guys used to wear one pair of gloves for the whole season, but then near the end there, they, companies wanted to sell the equipment used. So players were even being told, like, you know, switch it out. We need new jerseys. We need to, you know, if you got a hole in the glove, we'll switch the glove out. Um, yeah, they, more and more turnover on equipment was happening because used equipment was starting to get kind of put on a little bit of a pedestal for, for sales. Really um, and, yeah, and the, and the gear itself was also improving, so guys always wanted to wear the newest thing too, so every six months there was a new development of an elbow pad or a piece of pant or a piece of foam, and guys would like it, and they'd switch it out,
1: yeah, so was there any player that stands out to you that was and i'm I'm not going to use the term diva, but precise about their equipment, like wanted everything done a certain way.
3: Well, I played with a few guys to see who actually knew what they were talking about. And I, this is not a diva story. It's this guy knows what he wants. So I had one player who I won't tell you <laughs> his name. Uh, he wanted his skate sharpened. And I checked his skates out when I brought them back to the equipment room. They were fine, pure, clean edges, nothing wrong. So I just heated them up with the heat gun and brought them back. And I go, here you go. And he touched the steel. He goes, oh, I love it when it's fresh off the, out of the oven. But yeah. He, he goes out and he has a great skate. He goes, oh, it was one of the better sharpening. He goes, yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Another player, and this was Dougie Waite. Dougie Waite asked me to sharpen his skates. I brought them back, and I did the same check. I'm like, these skates are fine. And uh, I did the little heat gun trick because I was starting to get away with it, and I was around the team a little more. And uh, I brought them back out. Dougie wore them for about five minutes. And he looked at me on the bench during practice. Because you you can't mess with the guys at game time, so I could only do this at practice. But he looked at me. He goes, "You didn't sharpen these." And I actually had to admit, I go, "No, I uh, I thought they were good." He goes, "No, they weren't. I can feel it." So I took his skates off and I went and sharpened them and brought them back. <laughs> he, that guy, had a feel for his edges. I'm sure you remember watching his skate.
1: Oh, he was phenomenal. He was yeah. uh, He was a talent for sure. Yeah. How about on the opposite side? Any uh, anyone stand out to you as being very laid back about the equipment?
3: Um. I wouldn't say laid back but uh, uh, just, guy, just uh, a guy that wouldn't uh, God, he'd almost get mad if you sharpened his skates was, uh, he wasn't in the NHL a lot but he was in the minors his name was Dan Smith and um, we had him in the organization for a few years and he would he, give him a, it would take three or four games before he'd get you to sharpen his skates and when you did he'd still rub them over wood and plastic and try and like dull them a little bit and he just, he just didn't like that, that crispness. He, he said he liked to kind of be able to not rely on his edges as much to uh, to move out there because he wanted to be able to push with his leg more, was his theory. So,
1: Did yeah. you go- experience that a lot, guys, that kind of would tell you something and you're like, I'm not going to argue because you're the player, but sure?
3: Yeah, it happened all the time. Uh, Brad Winchester was a good kid for that, too. He, he, he was very picky with with skates and, and gloves. Uh yeah. Raffi was really picky with his underwear. Oh, really? It <laughs> <laughs> had to be real comfortable under armor shorts and a certain pair of socks. and Yeah. yeah.
1: When you went, eventually, you went to Toronto to work with the Toronto Roadrunners, obviously. How was that, that experience?
3: That was a very unique one because I uh, actually heard Jack on your podcast the other day. Okay. Uh, uh, he was kind of talking about it a little bit. I obviously remember more because I. I lived there and built two locker rooms for the team, plus did the equipment <laughs> for the team. Um, that was a different one just because it, it was an expansion franchise, essentially, and there was a lot to do. Um, I even had to remind the ownership at the time that we needed a, a, uh, a Powerade or a Gatorade contract. Like, who do, I, who do I order from, right? And they didn't know. So they ended up having to make some phone calls and sell some advertising and then told me who, who we could use. The AHL was different. There was independent contracts for suppliers. Okay. Yeah. But uh and we also started the season with a month and a half long road trip because the Rico Coliseum wasn't ready yet. So we had a practice arena in New York and then we'd go on the road for a month and a half.
1: So when you go on those extended road trips, I mean, like what are you stocking up on to make sure uh, you you're good for the, the entirety of it?
3: sticks is a, is the biggest thing. You want to bring enough sticks cuz they're very very um, well it's like a signature, right? So mm. you can you can have a a, a a skate, you can fix anywhere on the road cuz teams will host you, helmets, gloves, elbow pads, anything can get fixed like that, but a stick, you've got to make sure you have all the guys sticks. So you, we'd actually we would actually send sticks ahead to different cities because we knew we'd be thin on supply by then. So we would, like, roll into Providence or something like that, and like, and they'd be like, hey, you have a, you have a bunch of sticks here? And like, great, they showed up. Yeah, and then you just restock your sticks, your stick bags, and keep going.
1: Sliver, obviously you spend a lot of time with the Oilers organization. I won't say to pick one, but any guys who, you know, through their entirety were just kind of a pleasure to work with and just good dudes?
3: Probably best guy would be our our longest serving captain in team history, Jason Smith, Gator.
1: Any good stories with him?
3: I've had a million with him. We're still close friends to this day. Um, geez, I mean, even up upwards of a couple of years ago, we we drove across the country from Ottawa to to Kelowna. <laughs> I mean, I've had. I've had all my best stories I, I can't share, but <laughs> he's, uh, he's, he's an amazing dude. Actually, you know what? One story that not a lot of people know that I can share, that man had a pain threshold, as Derek Brewer used to say, of a dead dog. You, you couldn't keep him out of a lineup. Like I want to ask him what, like, how he gets through it. And he said he just lets his brain know that that's how that part of his body's going to feel for now. That's that was his, his actual mindset. He had a fractured heel for two months and didn't tell anybody about it. (laughs) Like, nobody does that. (laughs) Guy's limp. He didn't limp. He just walked around with a fractured heel before he finally told someone.
1: That might be the toughest thing I've ever heard. Just tell your brain. That's how it's going to feel.
3: Yeah. we, we, We pulled his big toenails off of his toes between periods one night, and then he kept playing.
1: Would that be the toughest thing you've ever seen?
3: Uh yeah, that and Mike Greer's shoulder constantly dislocating and him just popping it back in, putting it into a strap and continuing to play. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I remember that a lot. Like on the bench just pop it back yeah. in. That's hockey players like a different breed. Any other stories like that that maybe the, the average fan might not know, like guys who maybe you thought there's no way this guy can play, but he's out there every night.
3: Well that was honestly Gator. <laughs> the first. I, I, I almost dare you to find another player in Oilers history. But well, I wasn't around for it at the time as a grown-up. But Kevin Low, um, Stanley Cup rounds. He had a fra- he had a broken wrist and fractured ribs for like three rounds of playoffs. Jesus. You know, he just <laughs> kept going. So Kevin's another guy like that that just had that pain threshold where he's just like, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Everything was just, I'm fine. Yeah. I remember he told me his mother went to give him a hug during that playoff run, and that's when she found out he had broken ribs. Because <laughs> he wasn't going to say anything. He wasn't going to say anything. Oh. Kenny, his brother, knew because he was a trainer at the time. Yeah. But he wasn't telling anybody
1: either. Oh, my God. <laughs> That is ridiculous. Uh, so, uh, Sliver, what are you doing now? Obviously, I know you haven't been with the team since 2006. The Cup run was your final year with the organization. What are you doing these days?
3: Now I'm with a a local company called Summit Swing Stage. I've been with them since I left the team. Um, The essence of it started off as building uh, swing stages, which are kind of like temporary elevators on the exterior of buildings. You've seen window washers famously use them. Mm -hmm. Um, But it turned into us traveling through the U.S. uh, working on scoreboards and building arenas. Like I spent... Seven or eight months in San Francisco a couple of years ago, building the Golden State Warriors' new arena scoreboard and ribbon board. Really? And just recently, we were in Las Vegas completing the Raiders' new stadium and Jeez. and their stuff. Well, yeah, that's pretty but impressive. I, I, then I live I live half my life in the states. Uh, currently, even now, um, we go back and forth, but we have to do the quarantine rules now.
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So where are you off to next?
3: Um, I made the boss promise to leave me here for a bit so I can actually see people in my life.
1: <laughs> good move. Good <laughs> so move. I
3: currently, we have a couple projects in Oakland and I believe uh, Texas and Los Angeles coming up, but I'm not, I'm not queued up to go on any of those.
1: <laughs> Stick around here for the winter, hey?
3: Yeah, I, I really enjoy the winters. Well, uh,
1: Sliver, thanks so much for doing this today. Really appreciate it, and uh, maybe we'll have to get you back on sometime and tell some more stories.
3: Anytime, Connor. I do enjoy the podcast. It's uh, sounding really good, man. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that.
3: Yeah, buddy. Have a good
1: night. Awesome stuff from Sliver Delore, longtime Edmonton Oilers equipment manager. Give him a follow on Twitter at Sliv21, and that's the kind of guy you could go and have a beer with, and he could tell you some stories, things that – you probably don't even want to get on podcasts. You don't want it on record. But man, oh man, that story about picking up some guys from the Sidetrack Cafe, that is a classic. That's going to do it for us here on the Other Connor Podcast, brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. One more time, we got to thank our sponsor, DraftKings. And pigskin fans, the moment you've all been waiting for is right around the corner, and DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of Super Bowl 55, is bringing back their golden ticket giveaway with up to $55 million in prizes. Download the DraftKings app now and use the promo code THPN to enter the free $55 million Super Bowl Prediction Challenge. Everyone gets an instant prize up to $25,000 just for playing, so use the promo code THPN now and enter the free $55 million Super Bowl Challenge only at DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of Super Bowl 55. we got to thank everyone for coming on the show today. Oliver DeLore, longtime Edmonton Oilers equipment manager. Andy Sutton, who of course played 52 games for the Oilers back in 2011-2012. And Corey Graham, the host of the Corey Graham Show on TSN 1260. Appreciate all of you guys hopping on the program today. A really fun episode for sure. And uh, for those Edmonton Oilers, they are off Friday, back in action on Saturday, taking on the Toronto Maple Leafs puck drop just after 5 o'clock. Then on Sunday, it's the Ottawa Senators in town. A game that I think most Oilers fans would agree should probably win. But do not take them lightly because that team does bust their ass and they could make you pay if you are underprepared. We're back on a Tuesday with a new episode wherever you get your podcast from. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in to the other Connor podcast on the Hockey Podcast Network. Any comments, questions, or concerns, you can let me know on Twitter at Connor Thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Other Connor Podcast. New shows drop every Tuesday and Friday, wherever you get your podcasts from.